Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Sean Edry. And I'm Haggai Polevsky, and I don't give two tugs of a dead dog's dong about Marvel. And yes, I was asked to change that to dong. Yes, we are a PG-13 podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Sequart, the best online and on-your-shelf source for comic books, news, reviews, and previews. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. For example, a book I've personally been looking forward to a long time ago exploring the Star Wars cinematic oh. universe. This is the first in a trilogy of edited collections with essays discussing the films, comics, and expanded universe content of Star Wars. Contributors include Dayton Ward, Kevin Dilmore, Keith DeCandido, Zaki Hassan, our very own Julian Darius, and many more. With episode 7 only a month away, now's the time to refresh your memory and dig into the critical discourse that is Star Wars. Well, folks, with my regular co-host Tom enjoying the myriad pleasures of Thought Bubble, not that I'm at all envious, I've invited local boy wonder Hagai Pilevsky to discuss the latest developments in comics. Hagai, welcome to the show. Thank you. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Let's jump right into it, because it's been an interesting two weeks in the comics industry. And I want to start with a story that has a bit of drama behind it. It seems that Cullen Bunn has run afoul of fandom. Now, guy, you brought this story to our attention. Give us the basic breakdown. What happened here? Okay, so here we go. Fans, bad. Cullen, good. Cullen Bunn, who writes practically everything in the industry. He is most prolific. Yeah. He has decided to concede from writing Aquaman after people apparently having had strong feelings about Aquaman. Yeah, the book has been failing issue after issue. But that wasn't the issue. No pun intended. He has apparently taken a few decisions that readers are not fond of. Such as? Such as having Mera's sister, disguised as Mera, taking over Atlantis and seducing Aquaman. I am not making this up. Okay. And so the readers, having such strong feelings... Comic book fans had strong feelings? About Aquaman! How uh, Yeah, they reached out to him and said very nice, very calm things, such as, Redacted you, Colin Bunn. Of course. Why the redacted would you take this redacted decision? Okay. Well... There's a lot to unpack here. I mean, if we're talking about the overall scenario, I agree with you that the interaction between Bun and fans of Aquaman, (laughs) apparently such creatures exist, it seems to be a lot more detrimental than helpful. And in fact, when you think about it, a lot of interaction between comic book creators and comic book readers tends to go south. Very quickly. I'm thinking here of anything that Dan Slott has ever done on Twitter. Because yeah. that man just does not know how to stay out of trouble. Tom Brevert always gets into it. Stephen Wacker. And a certain Jitch Ronston. Oh, boy. Well, we'll get to him in a minute. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, what I found out while I was sort of exploring the backstory here is that Bun didn't quite present that interaction honestly. What I understand, and bearing in mind that I haven't read these specific issues, was that prior to writing Aquaman, Bun was working on Lobo. 
among many other among things. Among many other books. But in Lobo in particular, what happened was that towards the end of his run, he wrote a story in which Lobo was raped by a woman, but, you know, that doesn't matter. Rape is rape. And basically shrugged it off. There were no real consequences to that event. From what I can see, the backlash from that followed Banta Aquaman, where, surprise, surprise, Aquaman gets raped. Well, it's not exactly rape. It's rape by deception because he yeah. thinks he thinks he's with his wife. It's actually his sister-in-law. I can understand that when you are a prolific writer, you're doing like a dozen books at a time. It's possible that ideas will follow you from one book to the other. But apparently what people were protesting here wasn't just the fact that this thing happened to two different characters consecutively in Bond books. It actually booked in the, uh, happened in the same week, which was... I was not aware of that. See, that's yeah. even creepier. And then it gets to the point where the criticism is that if you are writing modern comics today, rape is not something you use lightly. It's not something you just throw in there and then it doesn't matter because if it were a female character, she'd go dark or something, but a guy can just shrug it off. There are all sorts of requirements. It's much like Invincible in that way because Invincible was actually raped and he didn't just shrug it off. Right. As Robert Kirkman did very well for once in his career. Well, that's the thing, right? If you're going to do it, you have to do it properly it has to follow have up with meeting. the consequence so with lobo that didn't happen and apparently what was going on here was that people were thinking that bun was going to follow through with aquaman mm-hmm. now according to him he would have but coulda shoulda woulda right yeah so it's awkward i don't think that this is a case of bandwagoning in the way that it usually happens because of those objections lobo of all characters can't be like sure whatever Old Lobo wouldn't have been, but new Lobo? Um, How many people actually read that book? Well, it was canceled, wasn't it? Yeah. That's the answer <laughs> to the question. No, the new Lobo has not been popular. To I'm say saying, the least. Like, if it had been an original character, maybe people would have been more open to it, but I feel like... Like a parallel universe Lobo in which everyone looks like a very, very bad version of... Why does it have to be Lobo, though? <laughs> Like, it could have been anyone. I'm trying to think, like, because Lobo is one of the few characters at DC whose look has been pretty consistent over the years. And then they turn him into Edward Cullen, and it's like, well, I don't think that that was... But anyway, the book's canceled, so my advice to Colin Bunn would be, you know... Stay off rape for a few... Well, I mean, look, Mark Miller does it all the time, but Mark Miller doesn't care what people think. The backlash was something that affected Bun. You know, he made the decision to... He was hurt by the feedback. He was hurt by the tone. He made the decision to step back and and basically abandon the book. But if you are going to use controversial and problematic scenarios, be prepared. You know, Mark Miller can shrug it off. He just goes to the nearest pub, gets drunk, writes another rape scene. It's all good. Bun, I don't think, has that kind of thick skin. Yeah. Too bad for him. I do want to say one thing. If you are going to interact with a writer and tell him, Hey, I didn't like your book. A, don't make a damn slot. And B... Because <laughs> <laughs> he will find you! <laughs> and, and B, if you 
are going to tell a writer that you don't like his work, which is okay. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But if you are going to do that, do that politely. I've seen what some people wrote. Mm. That wasn't nice. No, it's it's the difference between mindless trolling and constructive criticism. Yeah. So dying a fire doesn't help anybody. Yeah, Peter David but, uh, gets that a lot. Don't make a writer's life miserable unless he's Frank Miller. In which case, do that. Well, but in, certain writers might have it coming. But um, Colin Bunn, he doesn't deserve that because overall he's a decent writer. Hmm. He might have made a few wrong turns, right. but decent writer. Don't make his life miserable. There's a limit to how far you can push. It's understandable that you feel passionate about a certain character. And Aquaman. Feel, I mean, listen. <laughs> Chuck Austin okay. pr- provoked more swearing and more, like, expletive-laden rants from normally reasonable people who completely flipped out. But he was, like, he was the worst. Like, the absolute worst. And Colin Bunn is not the worst, and he might have made a bad choice here. Or a few. Or a few. The difference between raping Aquaman and raping Lobo is academic at some point. It just, like, don't do it if you're not going to follow up. So, he took the hit. And at some point, it became like spiking the ball. Having back down, people are still coming after him. There needs to be a, a different perspective on this in terms of critical reviews in terms of how you engage with creators certain creators deserve everything they get i don't know that bun is one of them it sounds more like he made the wrong choice a few times and was not aware of why it was the wrong choice but he knows now (laughs) i doubt that his next book will feature rape in any capacity in fact we will be reviewing a bun book later in the episode and there is no rape yet (gasps) However, I would like to point out that maybe Bun's uh, quitting Aquaman might have brought something good. As Jeff Johns announced... Is he going back to it? Uh, not exactly. I mean, we don't know anything yet, but we do know a storyline he was teasing about for three years since Throne of Atlantis mm-hmm. is Rise of the Seven Seas, which okay. is supposed to be a follow-up. And he's been teasing relentlessly about it with Ivan Reyes and Joe Prado. Which, oh, they're not bad. They're great. Yeah. So we're finally getting it in 2016. After As Aquaman, like as a run. We don't know yet. Uh-huh. But he has been hinting about it. So maybe he'll take up the book right after Bun. It was John's run, if I'm not mistaken, where... He starts off by having a meeting with a blogger who calls him uncool or something. What, the beginning of the New 52? I, I might be wrong about that, but I distinctly remember, like, there's a scene in which they're just sitting at a cafe, and the blogger's asking him, like, so you can just talk to fish, huh? And then Aquaman gives this whole soliloquy about why he's actually awesome, <laughs> which is unconvincing. And I'm pretty sure that was John's. So it might have been, like, the beginning of his uh, New 52 run, which Maybe. I... Have not read. But, I mean, that's why, like, the thought of John's writing Aquaman, for all that he's identified with a high point in the character's arc in recent years, 
I wouldn't read it. But hey, uh, if you are a fan of John's Aquaman, good news for you, right? Speaking of stories that raise certain uncomfortable questions, Rich Johnston, who I think is one of the most divisive people in the industry. Divisive? Divisive. There's only one group. Oh, we'll get to that. He's certainly a person who provokes mixed feelings, even within this podcast. There are days where I feel that I should give him the credit that's due to him because he has, on occasion, exposed certain practices at DC and Marvel that caused them to scramble for cover. And it's always fun watching DC and Marvel try to, like, dodge bullets because they're not agile. They're basically giant corporations. So it's sort of like... Imagine Galactus as Neo in the Matrix, just sort of like dodging bullets and he's this 300 pound. So that's always fun. But Johnston found himself in a bit of a pickle recently. This story started when Bleeding Cool's editor-in-chief, Hannah Means Shannon, ran an interview with Scott Alley, who was at the time editor-in-chief of Dark Horse. And molester. Well, we'll get to that. It was a softball puff piece. Which, in itself, isn't unusual. It was the sort of thing you'd find on Newsarama. Like, your career, rah, 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 Scott Alley. Yay. Yeah, we love you despite everything she, bad you Well, no, it wasn't exactly... She didn't bring it up, is what happened. Because it was two weeks before... Exactly. Shortly after the interview, Ali was exposed as a serial sexual harasser whose exploits were so well known that within the Dark Horse offices, he's apparently known as Bitey the Clown. <laughs> okay, now, so far, in terms of conduct, there's nothing really objectionable here, because I myself was praising Scott Alley when he announced that he was stepping down because of his involvement in Dark Horse projects that I had enjoyed. This was before the news broke, and he basically admitted to sexually harassing Joe Harris. Among, among other many people. others, yeah. apparently. That this was something that was known for some time. Unfortunately for Means Shannon, it then became clear that a few weeks later, she had been hired by Dark Horse in an editorial capacity. And, if that's not enough, after Johnston, my beloved Johnston... We'll get to Johnston in a minute. After he said, no, she hadn't known at the time, it was revealed by a blogger whose name I cannot recall at the moment, that uh, Means Shannon, contrary to Johnston's reports, had uh, delivered her resume to Dark Horse two months before the exposure of Scott Alley, which and means thus Pandora's box was opened. But not Jeff John's Pandora. Not Jeff John's Pandora. <laughs> this is like the regular mythological Pandora's box. What it means is that Hannah Means Shannon knew that she was up for a job at Dark Horse when she sat down with their editor in chief. She did not disclose this to Bleeding Cool or to the readers. And it's possible that she may have deliberately glossed over the accusations of harassment until Janelle Esseline yeah. broke the story the way that she did. I guess what this means is, uh, when covering stuff up, Hannah means Shannon means business. Well, there's a point to that. I like that. <laughs> now, here's the thing, though. Up until now, Johnson doesn't really factor into it, right? Means Shannon was caught with her hand in the cookie jar. But on the other hand, it's bleeding cool. You can make the argument that 
why should we expect them to hold true to journalistic integrity? The only person who actually thinks Bleeding Cool is a legitimate or credible news source is Rich Johnston. Nobody else thinks that, so maybe nobody else should be holding them to those standards. But unfortunately, Johnston decided to intervene. And there's no other way for me to describe this. He basically tried to throw himself on a grenade that had already exploded. <laughs> He was getting into Twitter fights, talking about, do you trust me to tell you the truth because the interview wasn't softball and she wasn't the only person Dark Horse hired that day? And and, just, and someone replied, no, Rich, I don't. <laughs> just, he was blatantly contradicting the known facts in a very, very transparently wrong way to protect Bleeding Cool's credibility as if it had any. Now, guy, I know you have strong feelings about Johnston, and I know that you are just bursting to let them go. So tell me, what were your thoughts on this situation? Okay. I'm not a fan of Rich Johnston. Honestly, I think he's a quote-unquote journalist, and I'm using those quotes because he and journalists are on two separate ends of the spectrum. I hate the guy. Because not only does he think of himself as a moral crusader of justice, I don't know, he isn't. He really isn't. And Dan Slott has shamed him after the Means Shannon incident for what he really does as a journalist. Which is basically... When you're getting it from Dan Slott, you know you're no. at rock bottom. Yeah, but, <laughs> but Dan Slott... I did not know this until Dan Slott said, and many people chimed in. What Johnston does, and it was very, it became apparent during the all new, all different Marvel. He gets leaks from Marvel, from within Marvel or DC. And what he basically does is calls up Dan DeDio or whatever and says, Hey, if you don't give me a lesser leak, I'm leaking this big one. And so, Marvel gave him the all-new, all-different Marvel, so he wouldn't leak something okay. big. I'll admit that on that point, I do remember that, that situation coming to light, that at the time, I was actually more inclined to take Johnson's side only because I don't care what's comfortable for Marvel. Because they're charging $5 a comic anyway. Let them <clears> sweat <throat> more. Or more, we'll get to that. Or more. So, you know, you're telling me this guy is making them sweat a little. It's hard for me to feel bad about them, right? Yeah. It's like, I, I understand the principle of saying, you know, this is a guy who's basically a muckraker, right? He goes around, he exploits all of these leaks in their offices, and that is perfectly fine. Again, like, in that capacity, it's hard for me to criticize him because all he's really doing is inconveniencing, I say Marvel and DC, but what we're really talking about here is Disney and Warner Brothers. Yeah. Right. Like the larger corporate, all he's doing is really poking at them with a needle. Dan Slott feels like it's undermining his work. Cry me a river, right? Like, I mean, it's Dan Slott. I don't have any sympathy for the man. Not after he goes on Twitter looking for these young female readers who don't like his work but and attacking them. That's Dan Slott. Why should I care what I he don't, thinks? I don't like protecting Dan Slott in this case, but she didn't even read his work. She actually okay. used the words 
wiki entries for Spider-Verse. Sure. She didn't like what she heard. Dan Slott didn't need to take it personally, which he did. That's you know, that's a, it's like, I have not read Onslaught. I read the summaries. I'm okay with not having read Onslaught. You know, it's like at some point, listen, comics have been around for 50, 60 years. It's okay to get a little, especially with the prices these days. Yeah. I can't blame her for not putting down $50 for Dan Slott's run and then being like, well, I didn't like it. Now what do I do? I'm 50 bucks in the hole. So I think what this incident has really shed light on is the fact that at the end of the day, the comics industry doesn't really have reliable news watchdogs. The only time mainstream media ever pays any attention to what's going on is if Disney is trying to shill something or Fox decides that they're an easy target for viewer outrage, as we saw last time with Sam Wilson. So really, when you think about it, there's no one who is trying to keep these companies honest the way you have in almost any other medium. And the closest thing we have is Rich Johnston, sadly. But that does not make Johnston's transparent attempts to protect Means Shannon automatically legitimate like just as he questions marvel and dc when they do things he broke the story about fantastic four being canceled axel alonzo was like no 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 business as usual everything's fine three months later fantastic four is canceled there's a certain element there Mm -hmm. of i don't want to it's not moral crusading per se but he is breaking stories that turn out to be true that doesn't mean that usually not necessarily that's true usually But I don't think that in this particular case, he had so much as a limb to stand on. And it was, ironically, by trying to cover up Means Shannon's own violation of whatever code of ethics she professes to follow, he damaged his own credibility. Because now... Wait, he has credibility? If he ever had credibility in terms of... I need to change that. Hold on for a second. (laughs) (laughs) No, when you... I mean, think about it. He was one of the first people who spoke out against Marvel doing 499 comics. He said this was a thing that was about to happen and people needed to be aware of it and that it was not okay. And in that sense, I find it difficult to disagree with him, right? 499 comics are a problem. However, this was a situation where he would have been much better served by being quiet because Means Shannon got busted. There's no ambiguity there. She knew when she sat down for that interview that her resume was on a dark horse editor's table. And if she pisses them off. Exactly. So this was very, very messy. And I do think it sort of feeds back into that whole notion of... If the comics industry is ever going to be perceived of as anything other than juvenile crap, it has to have some kind of media attention, some kind of scrutiny that it can survive because God only knows what will happen if a real journalist shows up one day and just opens up the closets and all the skeletons and the bats come flying out. All the stories about sexual harassment, everything that was ever covered up, and all the copyrights and all the... Comics can be a very dirty business. Our awareness is minimal in terms of the psychotic crap that goes on over there. There was a comic book about that, an image. I don't remember its name. Pencilhead, I think. Ted McKeever's uh, autobiography. Well, I don't know how... We talked about that when the solicitations came out. I don't quite know how... 
truthful that's going to be about everything in the business. But I mean, there are these stories all the time. Tess Fowler, Devin Grayson. There are all these stories about sexual harassment. The thing that distinguishes Scott Alley is that he actually admitted it. That was the first time that that had happened as far as I know, because Brian Wood to this day doesn't think he did anything wrong. Nathan Edmondson, too. Well, Nathan Edmondson, it's more that there's no evidence. The only person who's been crusading against him, as far as I know, is Alish Cote, who, as we found out in his recent newsletter, may not be all there anymore. <laughs> it's possible that it may be that he was talking about a parallel universe, Nathan Edmondson, who dropped into his living room and then disappeared in a cloud of smoke. I don't know what's going on in that man's head, but there's no evidence that Edmondson did anything. But again, this is an industry where there is so much covering up. Yeah. And it's too bad that Johnson has that stain among all the other stains, I guess. But, you know, that stain on his reputation. Because up until now, he could have made at least the argument that when it comes to stories about sexual harassment, when it comes to the sort of thing that everyone is in agreement on should not be happening, he covered up a blatant conflict of interest. And there's no two ways around that. Rich Johnston is honestly the reason comic book journalism will forever remain in quotes. Because the guy, unlike an actual journalist, he has no moral standard and compass. All he says is basically, hey, did I shock you? Let me shock you more. I once tweeted while using the name Bleeding Cool. And he found you. As I was soon to find out, he has notifications with every <laughs> time people say Rich Johnston, it's like bloody leading cool, or if that's not enough, BC. He has a notification for the initials BC. So that was during the Nick Lachey Twix story. Ah, yes. 20 minutes later, oh I shit you not, 20 minutes later, Rich Johnston says, no need to shoot the messenger. It's like Beetlejuice. You say bleeding cool and he's there. Yeah. yeah. It's that he is so desperate to defend the reputation of bleeding cool that causes these problems in the first place. Yeah. Why are you engaging with people on Twitter who have opinions about bleeding and cool? And don't even mention you. So, Marvel whooped DC's ass in sales in October. In the most basic scoring terms, it's a 43-21 win. Top 10 issues were all Marvel with one $5 title, Doctor Strange, one $6 title, Amazing Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man, $6? Oh, yes. I did not know that. Mm. Another reason to hate Dan Slott. Well, as if we were missing reasons. (laughs) But in any event, there are a couple of points here that I want to address. One is to remind everyone that DC just had its post-conversions relaunch in June. Not six months later, and they're closer to Image than to Marvel right now. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on this? Like, what's going on? Honestly, I don't think it's DC's problem. Because Marvel puts out so many books. While DC has, what, 50 titles, 60 tops? You mean it's not 52? It hasn't been 52... (sighs) (laughs) Even while it was the new 52, there weren't 52 books. But that's not the point. They have 
60 titles tops. And Marvel has well over 100 titles, so I'm not surprised that they just took the first place on their first month with all of the first issues. And they have the Secret Wars issues still going on. So that's a lot of issues in one month. And so, I'm not really surprised. Hmm. I am a little surprised only because it seems to me that they're both following the same tactic, broadly speaking. The whole point of convergence and divergence that came afterwards was to launch all of these books simultaneously, right? And have all of these different projects. It was a mistake, and yet... I went back and I looked at the June and July sales charts. Which were not bad. They weren't bad, but they were. you still had that discrepancy of some of the top ten were Marvel, some of the top ten were DC. This is a situation in which Marvel took the same approach. It is all reboots. They're all number ones. Wait, all wait, 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 wait. Marvel copied DC's move? Oh, listen, those this two... This is news no, for me. No, 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 Those two have been feeding into each other for decades. Secret Wars was basically DC's crisis. DC has been making all of this effort to incorporate LGBT characters and to have diversity. Because it went so well for Marvel, it can't be a coincidence yeah. that they started pushing for diversity in their protagonists after Ms. Marvel became a hit. There's always this synchronicity between the two of them. Basically, Dr. Fate is Miss Marvel, a young Muslim character who becomes a superhero and is still like a fanboy. And inherits a title from a previous hero, right? Yeah. Exactly like Miss Marvel. So, so it's basically... It's not coincidental. It can be. And yet, the thing that I don't understand is how it's working so well for Marvel when the exact same tactic doesn't work for DC because Divergence Didio himself has said that Divergence was a failure and now he wants meat and potatoes but that's a misreading of the situation which is typical for Dan Didio it's more that these books really haven't taken off as far as I know a lot of them were cancelled some of them retroactively became miniseries certainly the story with Omega Men was that it was supposed to be cancelled due to low sales and then it wasn't the lowest, though. It wasn't. I'm not sure it what was... the consideration there was. Especially, fans basically had to remind Didio, you said this book would run for eight issues. By God, it better. Twelve, I think. Was it twelve? Prez was twelve, and then it became no, two miniseries of six. Omega Men should last until at least issue twelve. Right. That's Tom I, King's original story. I should hope so. I mean, it does seem to be a book that has a loyal core of readers, but for some reason, DC doesn't seem to be pulling in readers as easily as Marvel does. I don't really have an easy explanation for that. I don't know if it's the marketing. There was some discussion on The Outhouse recently that DC failed to properly promote Supergirl. Now that the show is out, the show isn't great, but there's no superhero I love the first episode of Supergirl. Did you hear about her cousin? We'll talk about her cousin later, but she has a cousin apparently. She has a cousin. I didn't know that. I, didn't I was know that completely well. shocked. And this cousin apparently lives in Metropolis. <laughs> Go figure. Um, but so there was this whole discussion about how they don't have a Supergirl book on the stands right now to be promoted simultaneously. And as far as I know, they did have that for Constantine. They did Constantine the Hellblazer yeah. when the show was coming out. Not that it helped. 
I was thinking part of it might be the films. DC so far, in terms of constructing its cinematic universe, only has Man of Steel and the hype for Batman vs. Superman. That's it. So that might play part of it. I don't know. I have read that there was a leak, Kelso Priest, that said that if retailers ordered a specific very long list of Supergirl trade paperbacks, they would get a huge discount as incentive to get right. better sales on Supergirl, which is... An interesting move, I guess we'll call it. It's an interesting move, but it's a move that would fail because as far as I know, and and you would know a lot more about this than I would, the state of the DC comic Supergirl, what storyline would you give people who like the books? Not Jeff Loeb. Not anything that she's been doing recently. Peter David. She's a Red Lantern, but Peter David wasn't Kara Zor-El. It was um, yeah. the Danvers, right? I remember he yeah, had but this they long are reprinting the Jeff Loeb and uh, why and and Peter David runs. Peter David's run was actually pretty good, but it wasn't Supergirl. Oh. It was sort of like this Christian angels, all of this stuff going on, and only like his last arc had the return of Kara Zor-El, and it was actually really good. But that's not a book that I would give someone who's watching the show. Because the show says in no uncertain terms, this is Kara, right? This is the cousin of that guy who lives in Metropolis, (laughs) whose name we can't say uh, and will never come to visit. But, you know, he's out there somewhere. And it just seems like a really weird failure, not just in hindsight, but also they knew this series was being produced. Why did they not have an ongoing series, something like Bab Starr's Batgirl? Right, something that could appeal to the people who are actually watching the show. That's actually a good idea. Bad girling Supergirl. Why not? When I think about the iconic Supergirl for me is always the one from the animated series Mm. way back. And that was like Linda Danvers' appearance, but it was Kara Zorel. And that kind of approach would be successful, considering I mean, they don't know what they're doing with Wonder Woman. They have no idea what's going on with her. They gave her to the Finches. It went really badly. And they're still giving it to the Finches. They're Finch. still there. And the Finches are giving, giving it, it to us. Woman. <laughs> and we don't want it. But they're giving it to us anyway. Yeah, I, I think that this is definitely an indication that there are some major problems with DC's perception of what it is they need to do. Because the last thing anyone wants now is for them to do Secret Wars. Mm. Another crisis. It is very easy to see how short-sighted executives would look at this sales chart and be like, we need to do what they're doing. Yeah. Reboot everything again. It's like four years ago you rebooted. And if four years is the median time for a reboot to come crashing down, then you guys are doing something. You got to do something different. You cannot be rebooting every four years. Yeah. And I do have something to say about that Supergirl promotion. Mm. I've read the list of uh, trade paperbacks. Most of them are like 2005, 2006-ish. Very random storylines. Some of them are the showcase. uh, Oh, God. And not only that, not even the first showcase. That was like showcase volume five or six. What were you thinking? Because why? Even Gotham, even to promote Gotham, they oh, ma- no. they reprinted Gotham Central issue number one. 
If your show is getting less promotion than Gotham... Mm. Although, really, when you think about it, (laughs) Gotham is the easiest show in the world to promote. All you need to do is do the long Halloween, Batman Year One... Yeah, with Batman as a teenager... Yeah, but that part nobody cares about. Like, if you're watching Gotham at all, and I don't know why you would be watching Gotham, but if you are, you're probably watching it for the villains. Nobody really cares about Jim Gordon. You know, maybe they cared about him when it was... um, Gary Oldman? Gary Oldman. But, like, Ben McKenzie, not so much. Ben McKenzie's a good actor. I mean... I can't watch him in anything without hearing that goddamn SNL song, Ooh, what you say? (laughs) And then everybody just be shooting each other. I can't do that. That's that's not yeah. where it's gonna go. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, Gotham. When you think about the X Men in terms of iconic runs, right? You have Chris Claremont, you have Grant Morrison, and in fact, this is true for a lot of superheroes. Yeah. I'm straining now to think like, what is the iconic Supergirl story? It's not when she shows up because there was this whole thing about she shows up and Superman sends her to an orphanage, and then he says, "You must change your name. Nobody can ever know. You'll be my secret weapon." In that sense, I think there's a difficulty of finding the perfect story, right? Like the one story that everybody knows that you can then go and read. I hope it works out. Yeah. Here's an interesting side story. It's a little bit of news that actually took me by surprise. Alan Moore made headlines for actually doing something kind of awesome. There's this British citizen by the name of Graham Cousins, whose wife, Paula, is a foreigner. They've been kept apart for over two years due to immigration problems, the last of which was apparently an arbitrary declaration that Cousins had to have £10,000 in their joint bank account before she could be considered for citizenship in the UK. Alan Moore sent him a check for £10,000, along with a letter shaming the immigration service for racist undertones and how they handled the case. And as soon as Moore did it, of course, his fans followed, they donated... I have to say, it's been a long time since I've been able to look at Alan Moore as anything besides Grandpa Simpson. You know, old man yeah. yells at clouds. So good for him. This was actually kind of nice. Speaking of old pros in the industry. So, John Omita Jr., as we did know in the past, he's doing a one shot tying into The Dark Knight Returns and Master Race. <laughs> that title. Anyway. That title. Oh, we're going to review Master Race at some point. I'm sure of it. Yeah. So he's doing a one-shot which would reiterate how Jason Todd came to his end in the Dark Knight universe. Because oh. all over the Dark Knight oh. Returns are references to Jason. Yeah. And the announcement basically means... Oh, hey, remember A Death in the Family? No. We're doing that again. Why? Because... Oh, my God. Frank Miller's doing A Death in the Family? Yeah. And oh, Azarello. With the Ramita on art. The brutality of it all is just going to be like... I mean, there might actually be rape involved this time. I don't know. It's gonna, Like, that crowbar is not yeah. just going to be a crowbar. Oh, my God. It's going to go somewhere that it's not supposed to go. In the rain. Uh, it's going to be rain. There's going to be a dead prostitute nearby. I am sure. Oh, my God. I mean, look. Okay. 
John Romita Jr. And I say this so many times, <laughs> but it's so true. John Romita Jr. belongs to a certain generation of artists who should, in an ideal scenario, always get work. This is someone who is an industry legend for a good reason. A lot of iconic work for Marvel. He has his place yeah. in the industry. He's a legend, basically. And he should be. And there's nothing wrong with that. Signing up with Frank Miller is something that I'm like, are you that hard up for work? Because, goddamn. I'm just trying to think because, you know, we've always talked about Frank Miller as kind of a joke. You know, kind of. He's kind of a joke. I mean, especially these days, he looks a lot better. Apparently, I've seen him at a recent con, and he doesn't actually look like Freddy Krueger anymore, which is great. Good for him. I wish him nothing but long life and and health. <laughs> Absolutely, I his know. stories are terrible. Bad, 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 bad. But I'm thinking, like, how much more uncomfortable must it be to be his collaborators? Like, poor Azarello. Miller's calling him up and being like, "Kill the whores." Kill all the whores. And he's like, but Frank, I don't have any whores in this scene. Add one. Have it be yeah. Carrie Ryan. Spread them wider. I don't know. Oh, my God. I don't know. And, and then, like, you know, to be John Romita Jr. getting the the script and being like, I have to draw that. Wow. Yeah, okay. but you know what the funny thing is? Uh, Romita said in an interview... Conducted by DC, which is apparently something they usually do. I'm guessing this was on comic book resources. No, no, no. No? Oh. It was on the DCComics.com website. Oh, God. They That's all we one... need for them to start interviewing themselves. Yeah. <laughs> the voices in my head ask oh, God. questions. Anyway, he said, it's funny. I've never read Dark Knight Returns up until a month ago. And I'm reading this and I'm going, dude. You ruined the streak. Why did you ruin the streak? Well, no, hang on, though. Dark Knight Returns in itself, I think for all that when you look back at it today, can be a little ridiculous. It's still one of the better Batman stories. It's a classic Batman story. However... Don't read Dark Knight Strikes again. Dark Knight Returns is basically Frank Miller jerking off that. Oh, look at me. I'm so epic. I can do anything, even when I'm 80. There's something to that. It is absolutely common with Miller today to have these really crazy power fantasies. Holy Terror was, I mean, just sort of like the climax of that. I'm yeah. old, but I can still kick ass and look how manly I am. And da, 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 da. So good for John Romita Jr. I kind of wish he had a better project. Not going to lie. However... The art Ramita has for Dark Knight Master Race and The Last Crusade, um, there was a variant by uh, Ramita Jr. released, and it's pretty damn great. He's still a good artist. And the cover for uh, Dark Knight Last Crusade, as it's called, is great. Which is actually kind of surprising, because... Hmm. Have you read his Superman? Who, Ramita Jr.? Yeah. No. It okay. starts out great. Issue 32 to 36, 7-ish by Ramita are great. And then you can see he's pushing deadlines. He's really like, I need to finish the page today. Mm. And everything is so rushed. Mm. And it's actually painful to see. Because... Maybe he's just not up for ongoings. Yeah, maybe. And I 
love Romita Jr. I love his classic work. I even love his Spider-Man, mm-hmm. which is pretty much the only spot of light in J. Michael Straczynski's <sighs> run. <sighs> and so... Sins past. Sins past. Don't want to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. And I love Romita Jr. And it's painful to see how he's deteriorating. Speaking of old creators coming back, our last bit of news for today. Marvel have announced the return of Rob Liefeld for our sins. Dun, dun, dun. He's teaming up with Chris Sims and Chad Bowers for a Deadpool OGN called Bad Blood. Yes, like the Taylor Swift song of the same name, because that's where we are. Says Liefeld, and I quote, This is literally a story I've wanted to share for the last 20 years. How exciting! So you're going into the archives to give us Deadpool before he was funny. And Marvel thinks that's something that we want. And they paired him up with Chris Sims. Something is wrong here. and Very fundamentally wrong. So I'd just like to say no. No, thank you. I'm fine. No, absolutely not. No, no, no. It doesn't help that. You know, Rob Liefeld, God love him, but the man is an idiot on like a galactic scale. There was this whole discussion that popped up a few weeks ago, and I'm just sort of mentioning this. The film version of Deadpool will be pansexual. Oh my God. He, After 20 years of him flirting with Thor and Cable, Deadpool gets around, is the point. And this came as a shock to Rob Liefeld. Yeah. He was appalled. He's like, keep yeah. that gay stuff away from me. Well, Rob... Nobody asked you. Nobody cares what Go you Go back think. to your cave. Nobody has cared what you thought for 20 years. By all means, write your Deadpool OGN. Don't be surprised if nobody likes it. Because if you've been sitting on a Deadpool story for 20 years, I can pretty much guarantee that whatever it is you think you're writing, it's not Deadpool. <laughs> I would not be surprised if Jerry Duggan's Deadpool jumps into the story at some point and blows your Deadpool away. Because... No. You know what would be funny, though? If, like, Stephen Platt read this book and went, this is pretty great. Who did this? Oh. Mm -mm. I don't think anybody's going to be like, this is great. Wow, on a Rob Liefeld book. So that is another thing that we do not want. Let's move on to the reviews. (laughs) Okay, so as is so often the case for special occasions, we've decided to forgo the usual format and look at five number one issues instead of three number ones and a trade. We'll start with Howard the Duck number one. This is written by Chip Starsky, art by Joe Canones, and Joe Rivera from Marvel. Now, this is actually a re-review for me, in the sense that Tom and I covered the last Howard the Duck number one in episode 14, The Case of the Defeathered Duck. At the time, I wasn't particularly impressed with what Starsky was doing, mostly because I had hoped that he would use Howard the way that Steve Gerber had used Howard, which was as a way to parody Marvel directly. And that wasn't where the book was going. It ended up being sort of a more generic comedy, and I dropped it. So here we are again, post-Secret Wars reboot. Even Zdarsky is like, the only thing that has changed is that Howard has a new hat. (laughs) It is a cosmic hat, because it is new and of doom or whatever. Now, Hagai is our resident Zdarskyte. What did you think of this issue? I like that. I loved it. I've read the first, I'm sorry, volume zero. Volume zero. And did that joke wear thin in the issue? Yeah. Yeah. I've read it and I loved it because 
as he has said in many, many interviews before, Zdarsky's first comic book was Howard the Duck by Steve Gerber. And it became like his passion project. It was this and Jughead. And you can see that he just enjoys every moment of writing Howard. It's very fun. Nothing particularly brilliant. I'm sorry, Jeff. I still love you. It's true. But it's a very fun book. And if you, for some reason, don't know the plot, Howard wants to go home. Howard phone home. That's the whole point of this issue. And after that is a backup story about... Yeah. We're going to do this, aren't we? Gwenpool. A parody of a parody of a parody. Come Abed Nadir is sitting somewhere going meta, 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 meta. Before we get to Gwenpool, though, I have to agree with you that this isn't Starsky's best work. I felt that the jokes were kind of scattershot. Like, for example, there's a scene about halfway through the issue where Howard the Duck meets Howard the Truck and his hillbilly racist owner, of course. And they have this whole confrontation. And I'm sitting there like, okay, I understand that you're baiting Fox News. Sure. Have at it. You want the attention. But what does that have to do with Howard? Like, it doesn't make any sense... The guy tells him, Obama gave you my job. And Howard (laughs) launches on the kind of rant that we all wish we could say to the kind of people who say that Obama gave someone else their jobs. It's funny in itself, but it doesn't have anything to do with Howard. And in fact, that's sort of like the microcosm of why I've never been able to connect to this version of the character, whether it was volume zero or this one. Even now, for example... I can definitely see that Zdarsky is more comfortable with the character. Now, after the Secret Wars reboot, he seems a lot more in touch with Howard and with Tara and with Black Cat as a supporting character. But I still don't have any sense of what the book is about. Like, Howard wants to go home, and then there's all this talk about the nexus of realities, which I don't want to know nothing about that. But it's... It's kind of a parody about Marvel. You know, how is it a parody, though? Because every time they want to make a story big and epic, they just go, Hey, look! It's a parallel version of a superhero. And Zdarsky, in a way, just paradises that by making those... Do you remember that Iron Man Howard? Oh, sure, sure. uh, Spider-Pig and... Or Spider-Ham, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And... He paradises that by going, oh, hey, look, here are bizarre versions of Howard, which we're going to do nothing about, which is pretty much modern Marvel. I would need the parody to be more direct. It feels sort of like... Undermining. There are all these editorial footnotes about, you know, read issue one of volume zero. Every time he mentions something, it's like, read this, read that. Yeah, but... But he did make that a gag in uh, issue five, I think. Yeah. Of the last volume. I had checked out. Which you haven't read. Mm. So every third panel, there would be like a yellow box saying, read Ornithology Romance number 17, (laughs) Birds of a Feather. (laughs) And stuff like that. Which was very paradising. It's just not enough for me, I think. Are you sticking with this book? I'm not sure yet, but I guess I'll buy the trade when it comes out. Again, I'm sorry, Chip. 
I think I'll drop it. I mean, let's say Kinona's art is great. Yeah. And definitely. credit where it's due. Any Marvel book these days that has a lighter tone should be praised just for having the lighter tone because I am sick to death of all this grim, dark nonsense. Well, I'm the art... over it. Gwenpool back up. I, I don't know what... Like, I don't know what this is, is the problem. Is she Gwen Stacy who thinks she's Deadpool? Is she a Deadpool who thinks she's Gwen Stacy? Is she a butterfly thinking she's a man? What is going on here, and why are we reading about it? I'll tell you what's going on. Backing up a few months, Marvel came up with this brilliant variant cover, one of their gimmick variant covers, and in the background was Gwenpool. And Uh it was meant to be an easter egg with no, no point behind that which is basically mocking marvel for like deadpool izing everything yeah and so marvel saw they were getting so many hits on twitter and whatnot and they said we're going to make that a book oh god after releasing like a postcard of grandpool can't do it so, they told Zdarsky and everyone involved, hey, we want you to write about that. And you can see Zdarsky wasn't really intending to do that. She's looking for, like, quesadillas or something. I don't know. Like, it's supposed to be chimichangas, but it's not. And she's just yeah. running around causing havoc. And it's like, I don't know if we need you, ma'am. <laughs> I don't know if your presence is required, Miss Poole. We have Deadpool. We're happy with Deadpool. Well, <laughs> to some extent. He could go on a vacation, too. The movie might change that. I don't know that Gwenpool brings anything to the table, especially in the long run, because Darsky really struggles to come up with an angle for her that isn't wacky. We have wacky. What do we need her to be? Harley Quinn? No, thank you. We have Harley Quinn, and that isn't good. <sighs> so, yeah. Howard the Duck. It's fun. I can't say that I recommend it. It's not Starsky's best work. And, you know, he's writing Jughead. He's co-writing Sex Criminals. He seems to be doing well enough with other brands of humor. Yeah. This one specifically just isn't what Um, I would want it to be. Don't expect it to be Steve Gerber. No. You are not going to be cracking up laughing. I have a hard time believing that anyone's going to be like, ha! <laughs> that's, that's more like the last volume because Inconsolable Spider-Man was, was it for me. Somebody needs to explain that joke to me someday, but today is not that day. Let's move on to a Vertigo title. This is oh. Unfollow Number 1 by Rob Williams and Mike Dowling. So this is a pretty interesting setup. We have a young man who is both Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg and is therefore very, very rich. I don't understand why whenever stories try to depict young tech geniuses, they're always combinations of people. Like, there's no such thing as someone who was both Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. They would not have enough time to live. But never mind. This person is very, very rich and is also very, very sick. He's about to die. He has decided to split his enormous fortune between 140 random people. The plan is to fly them all out to an island 
which, as we find out right from the start of the issue, there's something very wrong and creepy about that island. It's not necessarily the island from Lost, but there's some shenanigans going on. We meet a few of these newly rich people. And they are, we need to say that they are, like, popular people among the social media. Are they? One of them is an heiress who is absolutely a pro at social media yeah. and promoting herself. But They're very active in folk. That's that the might thing. be true, yeah. See, some of them are more popular, some of them are less. Right, one of the protagonists, for example, is a thief. I don't yeah. know that he's super popular on social media. The, the story doesn't make that case in any event. Yeah, but in some cases, you can see that they aren't right. like this. 50 follower account. Right. I'll say this much. It's off to an interesting start. Yeah. I don't think there's much in the issue beyond the basic premise and a few character introductions. Really, it's just enough to get the story started. Yeah. Which is becoming sort of a common tactic with Vertigo these days, and I don't know if that's the way to go. Because uh, we've seen a lot of their new number ones have difficulty with the first issue in terms of giving us enough. Because this isn't a miniseries, this is an ongoing. Is so, it? Oh, yeah. I did not know that. So it seems very strange that we don't really have a lot going on here. The art's good. The yeah, art's the solid. art is very... Great design for the creepy mask in the beginning yeah. that we see in the opening. And it's not like this too mainstream Jim Lee style. No. God, it's no. very good, very unique. Yeah, Dowling is... has a very... Uh, I've never heard of the guy until I think Unfollow. He's oh, yes. he is. He might be. That explains there, there was one thing that bothered me about this issue. Comic book veterans like Rob Williams don't usually do well with social media. He's a veteran? Uh, he's been around for a while. I, I've only heard of him for the first time in like Martian Manhunter or something. No, he's he's been around, I think, since at least the early 2000s. But in any event, That's good he... To know. Um, you know, veterans don't do well when they're depicting social media, and I think that's where this book sort of stumbles, because... <clears throat> Scott Lobdell. Ooh, let's not even... If we go on a list of the people who don't know how to write social media, we'll be here all night. It's not entirely clear to me, though, in the context of this story, whether social media itself, Twitters, iPhones, etc., were needed for the story to work. This could have just as easily been some old guy in a mansion picking names out of a phone book, right? I don't understand... Not a Cerebus phone book, though. Probably. <laughs> I think the first issue needed to have some kind of explanation as to why social media. Like, why is that the angle here? What's the point of it? I, I would assume that it would come uh, later on in the series. And this Probably. is like part of the mystery and intrigue, you know, surrounding the book. Are you coming back for more? I don't think so. Hmm. While it was good and, like, interesting... Not enough. It didn't have a grip. Yeah. It definitely is missing some kind of hook, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I might come back for the first trade, but I don't think that there's anything more here to discuss in terms of what it has to offer, because it's, it really is kind of limited. Yeah. It might turn out to be good in the long run, but I feel like it doesn't pass the first issue test, yeah. which is you need to have a reason to come back for the it second. It won't one. be a modern classic. No. That won't. So, okay, there's this superhero. His name is Clark Kent. You may have heard of him. Is he the cousin of the... He's the cousin, yes. He goes oh. by Superman. 
And he has That's an, not original. His cousin already made well, that. Hang on. I haven't even told you about his origin story. You wouldn't believe it. Just in case you missed Action Comics, Jeff John's Secret Origins, Mark Wade's Birthright, John Burns' Men of Steel, J. Michael Straczynski's Earth One, and Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman. Maybe you missed all of those. DC has decided to re-release a modernized, updated version of Superman's origin story, titled Superman American Alien, number one. This is by Max Landis, the writer of Chronicle, and Nick Dragota. What is going on here? Okay, so unlike the previous origin stories, which have been a plenty, this is more like specific moments in Superman's life, significant moments, like the first time Superman could control his flight, depicted here for the first time in a month. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Very emotional. I guess, maybe. In a good sense and a bad sense. Yeah, because... Both a blessing and a curse. Yeah. There's a scene early on in the issue where Jonathan hurts his foot, and Clark is just sitting there crying silently. Oh my god, Daddy, I didn't mean to. Yeah. Now, any other character... Oh, I'm be so sort sorry, of okay. Uncle Ben. Oh, god, there you go, right? <laughs> it's the Uncle Ben thing with the rice again. But any other character, I'd be sort of okay with the notion of using that kind of childish angst to establish that at the end of the day, he's a good kid, right? Like, he yeah. feels bad. But it's kind of weird to do that with Superman. Especially when the thrust of this issue is Clark's fear that the government is going to come and take him away like E.T., right? They're sitting there watching this movie, and he's afraid that they're going to come for him. We we already had that in Smallville. And dear Landis, even then, you don't want to be like Smallville. No, God, no. Nobody wants to be like Smallville. But the thing is, even then... It doesn't even make sense on its own terms, because do you expect me to believe that a Clark Kent who spent his entire childhood living in fear of being captured and dissected by the American government would then grow up to become a protector? Psychologically, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, if you're living in fear that people are going to come and hurt you, you're not then going to magically grow up and be like, yes, but I'll save them anyway, unless you actually are Jesus and... We're not going to get into that. But it's yeah, like, Rick Veitch did that once. Yeah, and, uh, it didn't work out for him. It's more appropriate, I think, for someone like Hyperion from the Marvel Max Squadron Supreme or the one from Mark Waite's Irredeemable, whose name I don't even remember anymore. Uh, was it Irredeemable? Indefensible? In the, I don't know. It was something like that. No, it was Irredeemable. I'm, I'm yeah. not about that. And then there was Incorruptible. And sure. Then, all of that. And it's is? like, that's a level of sophistication that does not lend itself to Superman specifically. Yeah. At the same time, though, it's not all bad because there's a scene, for example, where Jonathan and Clark are trying to figure out how his flight actually works and they keep going through these different experiments and it's really sweet. Like, you have yeah. these moments between... It's very cute. Yeah, and it's like, this is Pa Kent. You know, he loves his son. Clark loves his father. They're trying to figure this thing out together. That goes back to the thing that I always felt Superman does better than anyone in the DC pantheon, which is to show the humanity of the superhuman, you know? In that sense, Landis does really well. But I do feel like sometimes he goes too far towards trying to, quote-unquote, modernize Superman's origin again some more. 
Pete Ross has a mullet. I don't know why. It's a mullet handband combination, and it looks bad as hell. There's nothing wrong with his approach, except that he's using it for Superman. That's the thing. Like, any other superhero with this origin would be fantastic. Even a Superman derivative. Yeah. Well, you, it would have to be a Superman derivative. We're not lacking in those at all. Yeah. It's just, I think that the cliche of making Superman realistic has in itself become a cliche. Like, it's become the sort of curse of, let's do Superman for the 21st century. But if you do Superman for the 21st century, he turns into kind of a douchebag. Yeah. This was... Uh, who did that storyline about Superman walking across America? Was that Straczynski? Grounded? Yes. That was That Straczynski. was Straczynski. Okay. Playing so basketball with the poor? Playing basketball with the poor. Walking up to some guy and being like, you have a heart defect, you should go to the hospital soon. Or burning down a meth dealer's house and then sending some kid to tell them, go find somewhere else to go. It's like, they're going to kill that kid. You know that, right? But no, he has to walk. He's walking somewhere else now. He's Forrest Gump. Yeah. So the whole modernizing Superman thing, I understand why DC feels like they have to do it, but... I can't remember seeing a modern Superman that made sense. Smallville was atrocious. Well... Atrocious. Well, the middle seasons of them, like seasons four to seven-ish, weren't bad. It was one to three and eight to ten, mostly. And even those parts had their moments. Well, listen, no show is... Well, let me revise that. Most shows aren't completely (laughs) terrible from start to finish. You'll usually find... I mean, Chloe Sullivan was a big hit on that show. You know, there were usually... Oh, the guy who played Lex Luthor was fantastic. Oh, Rosenberg, yeah. Fantastic. But trying to bring modern sensibilities to the Ur character in DC, right? The first superhero in the mainstream, the one that everybody knows, the one that has global awareness, and you try to make it like, This is a story that would have been told now. It just feels like... Stop dealing with his origin story. You know, Wade tried it. John's tried it. Burns. Every time they tell the story again and again and again and again. And really, when you think about it, Grant Morrison's take on that, the first page of All-Star Superman, right? Planet explodes, lands in Kansas, loving parents, reporter, the end. That's it. Like, you don't need to get into it each time. Jeff Johns' uh, Secret Origin also, yeah. also was great. Sure, but it wasn't even the last word, because after Secret Origins, we got Earth One. Oof. And that was a whole other ball of, you know, whatever. Of Straczynski. So, I'll give Landis credit for the emotional moments, because yeah. they do ring true. It, it does have, like, this father-son dynamic, and it is really sweet. Although the last page has, like, this really weird collection of letters, and, like, yeah. Jonathan that and Martha that. on a beach looking like hippies, and I don't need to see Ma Kent's breasts. That's not something that I what ever thought that I needed. That? And, like, letters about Jonathan's father. I feel I feel like this what? is going to be, like, the last pages of Batman Earth 1, where John's teased the Riddler and he made this him like this conspiracy theorist with a Ugh. conspiracy board no no we don't need that who is Batman who is Batman meanwhile who cares who Batman is really who is Batman 
when you get right down to it, we all are Batman. We are all Batman. We are Robin, but we are also Batman. But, as Alish Khan would say, we're all Batman, but just for a limited time. Oh, God. After a while, we no. give our Batmanhood. I, I <laughs> declare a cessation immediately cease and desist. Okay, so, are you coming back for more Wait, of American we didn't Alien? talk about Nick Drogata. We didn't talk about Nick Drogata. Um, what did you think? serviceable i guess the one scene that i thought was really well done from dragata's perspective is when clark's shirt gets torn mm. and he's hovering in midair with the tattered red cape yeah. right that was sort of a cute iconic moment but other than that it's like well it, it isn't dragata's best work but it isn't his worst work it's serviceable and really i think that that applies to the title in general would you come back for more of this Maybe issue two. Mm. Maybe. I'm not going to pre-order it right now, but I might, if I see it on a shelf, mm. I'll flip through it. Maybe I'll buy it. Not promising. I'm, I'm not sure what to think at this point, because I get the feeling when you're retelling Clark Kent's origin story, you're going to fall into the same trap, which is if it's the same old thing that we saw in the Christopher Reeve movies and the Dean Cain show and Smallville and all that, if it's just going to be that again, we don't need it. But if you stray too far in the other direction and be like, he had all of these wild adventures and all of this craziness, and but he he wasn't Superman. He's Uh, a He's a farm kid. Exactly. But there's a limit to how far you can stretch that. You know, Smallville was infamous for he fought Darkseid before he put on the costume. Yeah. He fought Doomsday before he was Superman. Please it's don't like me. there comes the point where you have to say it's a closed point in Superman's life, right? There are only yeah. so many things you can shove in there before it's like he was four years old and flying around with the Legion of Superheroes. What? What are you doing? Just don't do that. Actually, something Jaws did very well in Secret Origin was he had that part with the Legion of Superheroes, which was actually, uh, a while later, these few pages with the Legion were reused in Superman and the Legion of Superheroes. Oh, that's cute. Which was pretty much, yeah, we're going to meet you. But we can't tell you anything right now. Oh, we're no. going to every time they soon. every time the Legion gets involved in time travel, it's just like nope. Every time travel, I have lost travel. track. I don't know if you're the future version or the future of the past version or the past of the future of the past version or present progressive. I don't know. <laughs> Moving on, let's talk a little bit about Citizen Jack Number One. Woo-hoo. This is an image title. By Sam Humphreys and Tommy Patterson. Jack Northworthy wants to be president of the United States. Unfortunately, he's a complete idiot. <laughs> We're talking gun nut, get off my land, washed up athlete, alcoholic mess, impeached, bribery scandal, big, big Used to be the worst mayor in this town. Worst, just the worst. The worst, yeah. period. He's basically Donald Trump in a way. Except that he has help. Marlin Spike the Demon has big plans for Jack, and it intends to help him become president of the United States. You think Trump has like a demon hiding in his wig? That would explain that was so much. what I was thinking. It's like... Cause the ghost of a squirrel or something. Sure. So, 
This was an interesting read. I can't very much so. I can't find many redeeming qualities for Jack. This looks like it's going to be one of those books where you actively hate the protagonist, which Mm. isn't necessarily a bad thing. If done properly. If done properly. There's a lot of comedy in the idea of a guy who becomes president through demonic intervention (laughs) while doing the dumbest things possible. In this issue, to announce his candidacy, he drapes himself in an American flag and jumps into a frozen lake from which he emerges naked. He becomes a laughing stock, right? Everyone's yeah. making fun of the shrinkage, which obviously happens when you jump into cold water. But much like a certain politician we will not name, but who is indeed Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> the sheer joke of this putz running for office is enough to get attention. So in sort of this bizarre uh, <laughs> uh, cycle, he is a laughingstock, and because he's a laughingstock, people talk about him. And love him. And because they love him, and because they talk about him, he ends up on the board of candidates yeah. for presidency. What I loved about this issue, which you wouldn't expect someone to point out, one of the news, uh, the news anchors was a dolphin. Just because. <laughs> was, yeah. it, was it an actual dolphin, or a man in a dolphin suit? And he keeps saying things that are absolutely true. Like when they're talking about the bulls, he says, well, the margin of error. And then the other anchors are always like, shut up. We're talking. We'll be right back. Shut up. Yeah, they keep cutting him off when he's making the good points. And it wasn't clear to me if he's a real dolphin or not. This is like a statement of like dolphins are perceived as stupid, but are actually very intelligent. (laughs) So So are news anchors. That could be true. Which means, Fox News, <laughs> No, one of you might be a dolphin. No, not, I'm one, kidding. not no. one active brain cell in that whole bunch, but don't get me started on Fox News again. Yeah. The art has this really bizarre tone to it, which I really enjoyed. The design for Marlin Spike, for example, and uh, the scene where Jack is diving into this lake and all of these things that he sees and you're not sure if they're real or not marlin spike is clearly messing with his head yeah and it really has that kind of outworldly and yet at the same time relatable look like jack is running around with a bottle of whiskey and a bathrobe and slippers and a cowboy hat Screaming to high heavens and like, you know, people are laughing at the size of his dingus and just going completely berserk. And Patterson's art really manages to capture that. About the art, I feel like what Patterson is doing here with his style is basically Kevin Maguire meets Greg Capullo meets Ramon Villalobos. That's an interesting junction. And that meeting of styles fascinating and fantastic because the three of them are great artists and you can see the influence in some panels it's Maguire with his facial expressions some is Greg Capullo in general Mm. and overall it's definitely with Marlon Spike's design I can see a lot of Villa Lobos in there it's not just the design everything about that is very Villa Lobos inspired Mm mm-hmm Lobos and uh, Nick Petara in a way. Yeah. I really enjoyed this issue. I didn't think I would, so I'll be I. honest. When I picked it up, it felt like if you're going to do Transmetropolitan from the point of view of the Beast, <laughs> and then turn out that there's like Satan or something involved, I didn't know if that was really something that would interest me because 
Donald Trump. But it really does have some kind of, again, like, I don't know if there's any way that you can identify with Jack or feel sorry for him. Unless you're Donald Trump. Or want to see him succeed because he really is kind of, you know, he's a prick. There's no ambiguity there. a small prick. Apparently so. (laughs) And the fact that his desire to run for presidency comes out of a plan that a demon has literally cooked up for him. Raises some interesting questions. But I find that I, I want to proceed and, and see what happens next. I'm definitely sticking around. Yeah, I'll tell you what I felt since the announcement until now. So I was very excited about this book when it was first announced because I assumed it would be like this satire comedy meets supernatural, I guess. Oh. And then Sam Humphreys said in an interview... It wouldn't touch any very political subjects. And I said, well, maybe you've lost my interest. Mm. And then I read the issue. It rekindled my interest. Right. It's hard for me to describe it in such a way that I could sell it to someone else. Like, here's why you should read Citizen Jack. Because it's about a guy who's a complete idiot, but he runs for president and the demon is helping him get there. And it feels like oh my God, that God. doesn't even do justice, though, to how the story is set up. I mean, Humphreys yeah. really does a good job here of setting all the pieces in such a way that you don't even know if Marlon Spike is real. Because what happens is that this political director shows up yeah. to run his campaign, right? She likes him for whatever reason. He's willing to make a fool of himself. It gets him into the news. She doesn't attribute his success to a demon. She just says, you went out there, you made a spectacle of yourself. Now people are talking about you. So you're in the public consciousness. Like you are in the discourse. Marlon Spike might not even have anything to do with that. But he says he does. He says he does. But like, is he real? Is he just in Jack's head? It's implied that they have some kind of history together, right? Marlon Spike knows about uh, Jack's brother and and all of this stuff. So I'm really curious to see where it goes. I'm, I'm sticking around for the long run here. And our last number one is Drax. Yeah. This is co-written by CM Punk, former wrestler, and the frequently maligned Cullen Bunn. But as we said, Drax is not raped in this issue, so, so far, so good, with art by Scott Hepburn. Let me start by saying that I cannot believe there's a Drax ongoing. I mean, before the movie, this is not I'm a thing that would sure happen. Drax can believe there's a Drax ongoing. He used to be as D-list as they came. But in the wake of the success of the Guardians movie, and now that Secret Wars sort of cleared the board, Star-Lord has a solo book, Rocket has a solo book, Groot had a solo book. Now it's Drax's turn, with Gamora bringing up the rear. Now, this is actually CM Punk's second story for Marvel. He wrote a short story piece. overall. Third story overall. What did he write before that? A Strange Sports Stories right. for Vertigo. Right. He wrote a piece for the Thor annual that was about a drinking contest that was actually kind of funny. Yeah. With uh, Rob Guillory on With Rob Guillory. There's a combo for the ages. Yeah. Now, I have to be honest. This book really surprised me. Drax even within the core Guardian group, always felt a little extraneous because he's supposedly the muscle. But then Groot serves that purpose in the same Perfectly way. Fun. And, and he's thing. more entertaining. And the thing. Now they have the thing and Venom, and too. Venom. And Venom. So 
it really does seem like he's unnecessary. And in fact, the issue begins with the Guardians fighting this techno-magical thing. I, I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's a reference to something else. I'm not reading any other Guardian books. I don't know. But um, I had assumed it's a kind of a parody of the cyborg stuff. Because cyborg is currently like fighting off two races of techno-human stuff. I'm reading you the... You think Bun brought that in? Bun doesn't write Cyborg. He writes at DC, so maybe he knew... Maybe. Uh, that's an interesting question. Because Marvel has a history of copying DC. And vice versa, of course. Yeah. Whatever context is behind the first scene, I don't know if it's a connection to something else, but I will say it's a great action scene. Yeah. Hepburn's art really is up to the task of having Drax tear through these enemies <laughs> with their bits flying around, and, and it really is sort of this... Tour de force of here's this powerhouse beating all of his enemies. He's fantastic. And what happens is that the mission ends and the Guardians disperse in twos and threes to take care of their business. And Drax is the odd man out. So he decides, well, if I've got some free time, I might as well kill Thanos. Why not? I was not expecting this book to be so funny. And it really is. I mean, of all the approaches you would have expected a wrestler to take, I don't know if you've ever read the Ultimate Warrior stories. Those of you who lived through the 80s, you know what I'm talking about. But Punk has this... I'm calling him Punk. <laughs> uh, CM Punk, you know, whatever. Has a real knack for this absurd humor. And it lends itself really well to Drax specifically. Because I think even in the film... There was sort of a comedic element to him, the way that he yeah. mixes up metaphors. and Nothing and gets above my I head. I would catch it. <laughs> and, you know, he's the one who is, like, sharpening his knife while Groot's dancing to Michael Jackson in the background. <laughs> so he does have this sort of lighter side to him. And Punk really brings that in here where Drax borrows a ship from Rocket to go kill Thanos wherever he is. And he's intercepted by pirates. And Drax <laughs> is all like, come and get me. But... They're scanning this rust bucket of a ship, right? This wreck. And the scan comes up, may not actually be a spaceship. <laughs> and the pirates take off. And Hepburn just has Drax, like, with his fist in the air saying, you know, run for me. This is the only way you will survive. And it's brilliant. <laughs> I was just laughing about a guy it's, who... It's very Peter David in a way. When David wants to make fun of something without being acidic about it he can poke fun at it like in the first issue of young justice you had the mighty n dowd nina dowd her yeah. power was that she had enormous breasts and she couldn't stand up straight <laughs> that's the sort of thing we're playing on your expectations of what the character is and punk really does that well here yeah he just has drax as this comedic figure who is off to find thanos he doesn't know where thanos is so he's just sort of like flying through space he's like have you seen thanos <laughs> have you seen thanos nobody knows where he is it's brilliant. Yeah. And I never thought I would say this, but I'm on board with the new Drax book. <laughs> yeah. Go figure. <laughs> Honestly, I don't have a lot to say about Drax as a book, as an idea. It was very funny. The art by Hepburn was great as always. Other than that, nothing. I'm blank. Because I've read it and I'm like, hmm, okay. Okay. Amusing. Huh, this is funny. Yeah. Ha ha ha. Not laughing out loud, bursting like Peter David's X Factor or something. Mm. But it was like a fun time killer. Right. 
I mean, part of it, I think, is just that I'm surprised it's this good. Exactly. Bun is not a comedic writer primarily. He's not known for that. And Punk in the Thor annual was funny. But Gilroy has a way of making things seem yeah, funny. Odin's beard Easter with yeah. actual beard in it. <laughs> that sort of thing. So maybe part of it was that I wasn't expecting it to be that good. And, I mean, it's Drax. What does Drax have to offer? Because you don't think of him as a comedic character. If anything, you would assume that that would be Rocket and Groot. Yeah. Who have a duel ongoing coming out soon. So, here this guy is, seven feet tall, in a rusty ship that's falling apart. Figuring that in his spare time, since all of his teammates have gone to play with each other and he's not that social... He's just going to, as a thing to do, fulfill his longtime oath of killing Thanos because he murdered his wife and child. Fun. The joke there is that you expect it to be a serious thing. Like when in the movie, when Drax faces off against Ronan, you know, he's got these knives out and he's like, come on. It's not a funny moment. It's played for real. And yet here it's like... Good luck finding Thanos. You're like yeah. flying around in the it's, galaxy. You it's, don't... Like, it's like this summer movie, like a yeah. summer buddy film about a guy going somewhere with absolutely no rationale. It's like the road trip for vengeance. It's a kind of sense of humor that I think is different from Howard when you look at yeah. the two side by side. Yeah. Because Zdarsky's version of Howard is... I think less focused. There's nothing there that screams this is Howard's story. It could have been anybody. And when I and when I look at Drax, it's like the story is funny because it's Drax. Because he's like this giant green giant. When the Guardians all disperse, he has like these lines coming out of his head because he's grouchy that he's been left alone. And Rocket gives him this ship as a loan and he's like, Are you trying to kill me? Because this (laughs) ship has more rust than it does metal. And Rocket's like, No, no, it's fine. Go on the ship, it'll be okay. And it crashes almost (laughs) immediately. (laughs) You know. What works for Punk and Bun here that doesn't necessarily work for Zdarsky is that the character and the comedic tone are clashing in a great yeah. way because you don't think that it would be Drax. You would think that this would be Groot and Rocket doing yeah. this sort of like crazy adventures flying around. And in fact, Scotty Young's Rocket was doing exactly that, you know, having all of these crazy planets and these weird encounters with space pirates who were made out of his ex-girlfriends. And... <laughs> That kind of absurdist humor, as it turns out, is a really good fit for a character who, in any other configuration, is just sort of there. Because now that you have the thing, and you have... I don't know much about Agent Venom, but I mean, the presence of the thing in the Guardians, thing is a popular character. Ben Grimm is one of Marvel's most recognizable, iconic characters... And he's taking Drax's spot, basically. Yeah. You know, he is the one that you would want to see cracking all the jokes and punching all the people. And it's hard for Drax to distinguish. And what I loved about the thing in Drax was, like, he goes, like, it's clobbering time. And they go, like, okay, we've heard that enough. Please find a new character. The Guardians have problems there because it's, like, it's clobbering time and I am Groot. It's clobbering time, (laughs) I am Groot. And they're sick of both of them. Yeah, and they'll just let Hoder in. Oh, any, yeah. Any, any second Hoder's going to join the group, and then it's just going to be a whole thing. 
I'm sticking around with this book and I'm here for the duration because it feels so much more fun than Howard the Duck. Like, I read Howard and there were moments where I smiled, but I didn't laugh the way that I did when the pirates scan his ship and the the tag that comes up is may not actually be a spaceship. (laughs) Worthless. Leave it. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this. CM Punk, stick around. Write some more comics. You're really, really good at it. Uh, yeah, because what I'm guessing is Cullen Bunn gave, like, this outline of the story. Probably. And what is Bunn? Is Bunn writing another Guardians book? I don't think so. Not that I know of. And I would assume Bunn gives the outline. Much like uh, Keith Giffen and J.M. Demetrius. Mm. Giffen gives the outlines. Demetrius. And J.M. fills in the bubbles. Right. With, okay. And makes it the funny thing that it is. I hope that this team sticks together then because yeah. this has the potential to be really good. This has a potential to maybe, maybe, and you know I'm saying it very worriedly, it might actually be the next Just the International. I would hope so. I mean, when you're playing with that galactic field, right? And Marvel, Marvel tend to take their cosmic stories a little more seriously than that. Yeah. But when you look at the things that they've done, you could tell a lot of jokes about, like, the Kree yeah. and the Skrull and the Shi'ar being birds. There's a lot of, okay. of content there that could be exploited. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes next. Yeah. And that is it for our special episode of the Smorgasbord. Yeah. Today, any parting words? Uh, no, except that I still don't give two tugs of a dead dog's dog about Marvel, despite Drax. You heard it here, folks. So, for the Smorgasbord, I'm Sean Edry. And I'm Hagai Pilevsky. And until next time, bon appetit. <laughs>